Welcome to The Baseline with Jeremiah Hosea. It's a wonderful Friday afternoon here in New York City. We want to thank you for tuning in, and we have a very incredible show prepared today. I can't believe it, actually. One of my heroes of independent media is on the line, and um, in a moment, we're going to be joined by the one and only Ryan Christian of The Last American Vagabond. Ryan Christian is just a phenomenal individual. I've come across his work. I'm not sure when I originally came across his work, actually. I've been racking my brain to think, when, first of all, did I first become aware of T-Lav? And when did I start locking into T-Lav? Because I'm a regular listener, and I'm trying to think. I'm not exactly sure when that began. But his COVID coverage has been outstanding. And it's a show unlike any other that I've come across. I'm an information junkie, as I've mentioned before. I just love good information sources. I'm constantly seeking information as I exercise. I'm listening to a lecture of some kind or another. If I'm practicing the bass, I like listening to talk radio, lectures, documentaries. So when I come across a show like The Last American Vagabond, um, it's a, just a treasure for me. And we're going to jump right into it. Is is Ryan Christian on the line? Yes, I am. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. Thank you so much for joining me, Ryan. It's such an honor to have you on the air. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Well, let me say, first of all, Ryan is a real deal dude because I don't have a very big Twitter following. I'm not very active on Twitter. I sort of jumped onto Twitter after... Um, you know, not being active at all, never looking on Twitter. And then as the COVID scenario started heating up, it wound up being one of the best sources of information until people started getting censored like crazy. But I reached out to Ryan just maybe in an open message, and he's been perfectly willing to interact with, you know, a little, a little guy like me. I think I'm a little bit more known in the music world, but I'm an up-and-coming citizen journalist. So for you to be here, Ryan, you're, you're really helping me uplift my platform, and I greatly appreciate that. Now, you know, my pleasure. My pleasure. I, I think it's important, you know, that, I mean, quite frankly, it's still hard for me to kind of see myself that way. You know, I'm, I'm still the one proud to get an interview with James Corbett, you know, like I've come, come on that path myself. But it's so important that we help give others a leg up, you know, or just re- just way that a lot of this world works or people will just, like you're saying, kind of put their nose up to people that aren't big enough. That's just never been my style. I think that's a, a poor way to go about it. Well, I, I love that attribute of yours. I, I think it's incredible. And it's really crazy because my debut episode, which was last week, featured my good friend Ryan Waters, who's the lead guitar player for Sade. So um, mm-hmm. it's kind of strange. Maybe we could get our numerologists and our astrologists on the case. What is the meaning of two Ryans <laughs> in a row? You know, can we add up the numerology around that? Um, But let's jump right into this conversation. Our world has been turned upside down, Ryan. Um, You you keyed into things that I was aware of, and that's when I first saw, I don't even remember which program it was exactly, someone in the information group that I formed in reaction to the COVID agenda shared one of your bits and I enjoyed it so much, I made sure to just start tuning in regularly. And now I'm just a regular listener of T-Lav. And it's my number one news show right now, which hmm. means a lot to me. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So let me ask you, first of all, I want to get into what's happening today, but I want to know a little bit more about you. So first of all, when did you become this alert politically minded philosophical investigator were you always like that as a kid did you inherit that from one of your parents or both of your parents or is that something that's unique to you where did you get this curiosity from yeah it's i I think i'd like to say it's a combination of both i was actually just talking about this funny enough with my mom about the the interesting dynamic between my now I, i grew up most of the time with my mom my stepdad but my, my mom and my dad in particular were the interesting dynamic, whereas my dad was a teacher, still is a little bit, but, you know, he's always a teacher. And, but, but I guess you could say one of the good ones, if, that, if people know what I mean. You know, like somebody, he's, he was always very about encouraging people to question what they're being taught. You know, that's very rare in even the teaching field. Uh, but so he was always kind of the person telling me, you know, what do you think about that? How does that make you, you know, not, how does that? add up with what you think you understand before and you know and then my mom was the side of it going how does that make you feel 
right? How does that, what, you know, what does that mean to you in a deeper level? And it really kind of just, I, so I was getting both of these, most people don't get that, you know, both those kind of perspectives. And I really do think it, it one, allowed me to understand that it's completely okay to question orthodoxy and anything, no matter how, you know, revered, because we're supposed to, that's, that's intelligence. And at the same time, though, considering how the emotional side of it plays into it, not our emotional reactivity, but more so just compassion, empathy, you know, things that are dying in this world, it seems. But so that really kind of at a young age opened my mind to certain things, you know, about any number of things. Like my mom, for another example, even though they were very strict Catholic the way they were raised, and we still went to church, and I'm Christian today, she brought it to me at a very young age that said, you know, this is what I think, but I want you to decide for yourself what you think. Right. At a young age, which again, I'm just like blown away when I think about these things today. And and I chose, I went through my own path, and I, I chose to, you know, have a very specific perception on organized religion and, you know, spirituality in general, but she gave me that freedom, you know. So long story short, that is a big part of it. But I think looking back now at myself, as I was then, I didn't really think of it that way. But I, I notice more and more today of certain things that I thought then or asked, and I'm thinking, yeah, I was definitely on that path even as a young kid, pushing back against what teachers told you shouldn't, shouldn't do, real small things, or just questioning bigger, bigger understandings of what we were taught, you know. And then really for me, when I all that time forward, I was still very kind of normie, if you will, you know, what, trusting what the news said. I didn't understand what these thoughts really meant until I think the cannabis conversation really opened my mind to a lot of things, really kind of realizing for the first time that we were lied to on a really obvious way about, you know, the safety, the, the medical purposes of, of hemp and cannabis in general. And that is one of the big opening doors for me. That's actually how I started The Last American Vagabond entirely around cannabis law reform and just how that one discussion really implicated. It had its fingers in almost everything. You know, and we're seeing a lot of that today. But that that and that exploded from there and broadened it out to just about anything we're being lied to about. You know. Well, that's great because that leads me to the next sort of background question I have, which is, could you give us a quick history of T Lab, the Last American Vagabond? When did you found it? Um, you said it was just now that it was motivated largely by the laws and and everything pertaining to cannabis. When did it start expanding into the varied? subject matter that you now start to cover you know that you cover now so extensively mm, yeah for it really it's it's hard to say get an exact date because it, it, it grew in a, in a very organic way you know i didn't i never for even the first so many years i never really envisioned what it is now it was more of just like a side project it, it, it was at a time where I, most, maybe people don't know I, i'm a classically trained chef i went to the culinary institute of america in napa valley oh, and 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 for years and got my degree there and you know so i've been a chef my whole life that's what and a talented career. musician i might add so very well, talented all thank around <laughs> here we should talk about that later indeed i'm definitely trying to lean more into that these days absolutely but but so i you know i, I definitely you know started to uh i just lost my train of thought we oh, you were saying, talking the, uh, about the culinary school and the evolution of you, t-lab yeah so so i you know essentially uh after that whole time frame, and I kind of grew into this, I was traveling uh, with my buddy. So I was kind of in between jobs. I was at a point where I Hence still the loved something. I loved what I was doing, but I, I just felt like I needed to change. And so I was traveling the U.S. That's kind of where the name comes from, The Last American Vagabond. Right. I'm traveling. I was picking up jobs here. I, you know, I was actually working as a GM in Texas for a while. He, he started a website randomly, which kind of just, I said, I want to do that. <laughs> I just randomly started the very first thing, lastamericanvagabond.blog.com or something. And, and, and then it just kind of exploded from there. And the more I began to see that the cannabis side of this, you know, people being put in prison, prison recidivism, and, and you know, the, the all the, how this continues to blossom into something much bigger, blossom being a bad word for that. But so then I just kind of opened that up to saying, okay, well, what else are we going to lie to you about? You know, obviously 9-11 was a really big moment for a lot of people, including myself, where you know, I, I, I was watching on TV, you know, and I and then immediately started to see things that didn't add up. And, you know, and so just from there, it just blossomed into literally anything that we're being misled, misled about and trying and with an overwhelming focus on, as I even jokingly say these days, irritating objectivity. Like, I think we need that today. We need to go over the top. That's one of my favorite features of your show, by the way. I love that quality about what you do. Yeah, that objectivity it's, it's is, is lacking. Sorry, say it again. I just said it's hard, though, because it really, just by the name, it really does kind of frustrate some people. You know, where, like even James Corbett jokingly said this one time, where he, he loves that I do that. 
what we were talking, and he was like, even sometimes I'll be watching him. He's like, oh, come on, Ryan. Like, <laughs> you don't right, need right. to point that out. But I just, I feel like it's important because of how overwhelmingly intentionally ridiculous and hyperbolic everything is. We just have to go above and beyond, you know, to be as objective as possible. And I think it's having an effect. I really do. Right. Well, I think we're we're kindred spirits in that sort of way. It reminds me of a book. I don't know if you've ever heard of a book. Um, and actually, I need to read this book still. I'm so embarrassed I haven't read it because a friend of mine years ago made me very interested in a book that it took me years to, to finally get my hands on called The Man Without Qualities by Robert Musil. And uh, the, it's apparently it's a favorite of Sigmund Freud's, and I, I need to read this book. I bought it, and the first paragraph was such stunning writing. I was just paralyzed. I just I didn't want to read this book outside of paradise. So it's like I need to just get back and read the book because it's just such a fascinating book. But the concept is a man who's very intelligent and sees both sides of every argument so well that he cannot make a decision. He cannot define himself in the world, basically. He is the man without qualities. So um, I think uh, you're not like that and I'm not like that because we have principles, but we are very much like that in trying to really genuinely see both sides of an argument and see the subtle area in between because I'm finding more and more that people are just into this just sort of crude master-slave dialectic. It's like either someone's mm-hmm. God or they're the devil. You know, right, and it's like, well, right. what if somebody's wrong about 99% of what they say, but they are very right about that one particular thing? You're going to overlook the one thing because you've convinced yourself this person's simply wrong when they speak or they express themselves. And the other way around, right? Someone could be very right about almost everything that they say, but particularly wrong about one thing which may be very important or not that important. Mm-hmm. But Often by design in that, that, that latter part, for sure. What, 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 if I could comment really quickly on the, on the title you brought up. I, I'm not familiar with the book. It looks interesting, and I definitely will check it out. But from what I take what you're saying there, it does definitely highlight the pitfall of that, right, And which is also very important to consider. Like it's not – the idea of objectivity is not to, to go so far as to never make a choice, right, like we're talking about. Like you, you definitely need to – and that's where you pointed out. That's where your integrity comes in. It's your, your, your morals, your beliefs, even just your opinions. You know, the idea that you, you – Considering all these things, you maintain the best amount of objectivity, but there's also the pitfall of where people are ending up in a position where they just choose to always walk the line. And I, and I, I get that criticism sometimes, too, and fair enough. I don't think I do it, but it's, it certainly could be happening. So it's, it's, it's a difficult time, you know, I, and I think a lot of these things are by design, like you just pointed out. You know, you, you just, it's almost like they, using the agendas, you drive people into positions of apathy, of, of a lack of empathy. You know, so many different things are happening because of that and it's like that's that's again why we have to be so objective because if you're not willing to stand back and ask if at the very least you might be wrong like you're pointing out then you're always going to be misled right often i should say right and that leads us into what i would like to discuss with you because it's something that you've covered so extensively and in such great detail which is the covid conversation and now i want to make a statement here and i'd love to hear your reaction to it I think that the fact that the governments of the world pressured their citizens to take experimental drugs that are now resulting in observable excess mortality is the biggest item in the news today. I believe that if you're watching a news source that's not covering that, turn off that news source and don't listen to it anymore because either they're not aware of what's going on or they're aware of what's going on and they're hiding it from you. But I find it completely outrageous that governors and senators and Congress people and the president himself and the vice president took it upon themselves to make medical prescriptions to the public. I mean, how dare they? Mm-hmm. I find that so outrageous. And I guess the first question I want to ask is what comes to mind? How do you think this uniformity was achieved? You know, I'm someone I just sit back and I, I remain dumbfounded about this still. I mean, the things that we just lived through and we witnessed with our own eyes, we heard with our own ears, we experienced the whole thing. And I still just sit here in utter amazement. Why didn't one mayor, why didn't one congressperson, a senator, someone speak up and just say, I don't feel comfortable making medical recommendations to people? I think mm-hmm. that's a personal thing. How are they all so well prepared to follow orders? What's the deal with that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, well, in the first part in general, just, you know, that I agree with you, you know, and I think that 
it's impossible not to see that this is the, this is not even I shouldn't even say likely. Like I think objectively, the biggest thing we've ever seen in the planet. Like I don't know how we can't see how crazy that is. Like, and I'm not necessarily even getting into the idea of whether more or less people were killed. I do think we're beginning to see that, but just the sheer like what you're talking about, the, 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 like to reference the lockstep aspect of the larger document, right? The, the Rockefeller document, the idea that literally in lockstep around the planet, you can have governments initiate things, even adversary governments. Like it just, it really is astounding. And so I'm with you that the idea that this would not be in, in everyday news right now, because it's still developing is, is kind of crazy. And you're right. I've, I've said a similar thing over the years lately that taking the medical field, for example, they kicked all the people out that didn't take the shot. So you were effectively left with people that were either too dumb to know they were wrong or chose to ignore it for a multitude of reasons. And that's really alarming. That's military, police, hospital, and that's who we're dealing with now, you know? And, but so the, the, your point, the second point, you know, it's such a hard question and really is opinion, right? But the idea that it, it's sort of like the manufacturing consent or exactly that, Right. Even though that he in himself kind of lost it throughout COVID, this, the main point about manufacturing consent goes back to the idea that people at some level, there's an authority. Right. There's a there's a kind of a decision making organization, individual, however you want to look at it. I think I tend to see it as kind of a multifaceted, you know, the Davos things, the World Economic Forum kind of organizations where they've decided. that Basically, that these things like, well, first of all, that they need something to, to come to pass. Let's just say the Great Reset. Right. Or whatever kind of perception they had of that 20, 30 years ago. Maybe they didn't have the technology yet. Right? So they, they try to put people in positions that would hold the kind of values that they think are necessary. Again, to take it back to that, I didn't explain it all the way through. The idea of the, me- the media part of it is that, as, he, as he's often pointed out, people are in positions. You're talking about media. Noam Chomsky, correct? Oh, excuse me. Yes, Noam Chomsky. I'm sorry. And, and just to be clear, also, Noam Chomsky, although he sort of popularized the term manufacturing consent, he did actually take that term from who he referred to as the dean of American journalism, Walter Littman. Right, right, right. right. In, in, in this example in general, though, and my point was he kind of lost his mind through COVID. Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm so horrified by what Chomsky has said. Yeah. But yeah, go I, ahead. I I still greatly respect his previous work, and I, you know, I'd like to just chalk it up to him being scared, but I find it really hard to believe. But anyway, the point was that he's always argued, you know, that it's not that these people in media necessarily even know that they're lying, right? It's that they are in that position because they were deemed to already hold certain concepts and beliefs in high regard. And so Absolutely. they end up in a position where they act not even knowing they're being dishonest in some cases, otherwise they just do it to protect their position. But on a large scale, it's been engineered that way. Right. So if you're a person that has lots of integrity and you're, you know, you won't even make it past the steps of that building. You know, like that's the kind of way and a lot of people involved in those decisions don't even realize that's what they're doing. Right. It kind of trickles down. Right. So on a larger scale, you could argue that something like that's been done for possibly our entire existence, decades, years, who knows. But we can see that with the military. We can see that with all these power structures where people have been kind of engineered into a certain mindset. So then you take the, the initiation of this. Now, my first thought is, you know, what was it that caused them to act in such a clumsy, rushed, kind of rational way? We all see that. Like, there, it, in, in history, U.S. government in particular has always showed that it, you know, it's measured in a lot of degree, not maybe not U.S. foreign policy, but like long-term agendas, where they will kind of execute smaller parts of it, they'll react based on our reactions, and then they'll take different choices. But in this case, it just seemed like it was ham-fisted. It's happening. We're driving this in, and my gut tells me it's because there was a timeline that we're not aware of. Right. Something. We could talk about larger things like Yuga cycles or different planetary ships or, you know, thousand-year issues of people, you know, historical issues of the planet. Or you could just simply talk about maybe they buy their own BS. Maybe they believe the planet's going to come to an end because of climate change. Who knows? But my point is that they definitely initiated this and at the expense of their own credibility because they kept pushing. And, and that woke up more people than I've ever seen in my life. You know, so again, so why? I don't really know. But I, my gut tells me that it's because there was something that they felt they needed to execute now. And it could just be because they saw their diminishing credibility already and realized they, they, it's a dying, you know, kind of a cornered animal and they have to react, you know. But anyway, I can theorize all day, but I'm with you. And I think this is probably one of the biggest things we have ever seen. And it's almost deliberately now being downplayed by a lot of independent and corporate media for that very reason. So I'm with you on that. Yeah, I mean, 
I find it amazing that um, people want to forget about this so quickly, but then I realize the people who really want to forget about it are the people who bought into it the most and exactly. who often wound up being the foot soldiers of all of this. That's the thing that drives me uh, you know, just insane is I find it crazy that people were willing to take a rushed-to-market experimental drug, but to be angry at others for not taking it. How insane, how absurd. When, when... It's, it's kind of the same point, though, right, is that these people, you know, over the process of so many years, so many decades, people have been conditioned slowly, one at a time, one topic at a time, to take things at face value. To Like, you, you could really right now overlap that with the reshuffling of journalism, which Twitter Files is doing, and a lot of other games, where they're, they're retraining people to engage with non-source material as provable information. So it's the same kind of thing on a large scale. We were engineered and trained and conditioned to think that doctors and scientists are altruistic. Well, they wouldn't be there if they weren't. Like, you can trust them. You can trust your government. Government gives you rights, like these kind of things. None of that's true. You know, these are just people with their own dynamics, maybe with addictions, maybe with, you know, failing marriages. Like, these people have issues that drive them to take the actions that are dishonest. And that's not even getting into whether they're, you know, corrupt, like actually involved with some kind of larger agenda. Right. You know, so what the average person falls into the line. They think they're doing the right thing. Then they get scared. They get shouted at. They say, you're going to lose your job. We're going to take your children. You know, and, and this is my whole point, though. Like, I'm willing to bet you if they came out and said, take this thing. Even if they lied and said, nope, perfectly safe, not experimental, and then we all showed the people like we did that it was a problem, and that was all and where it stopped, they would have failed. My point is we've continued to show that they did not have the momentum even from the start. They had to corral, they had to you know, cajole, they had to scream, they had to threaten, coerce, and then people took it. And even then they still didn't get 100, you know, what, 50%? And they kept having to well, push and, uh, new actually, jobs, new threats. It, they but. really ran the gamut in terms of they tried every strategy within a window of time to convince people to take this stuff. It started out by just moralism. Just be a good person. It's for your right. neighbor. Then it was prizes, pizza and, and free weed and free beer and other things, lotto tickets. Then it was which, which you're being a bad person, you know. So they, if yeah. they, um, and, and then there's just the, you know, the fact that um, I, I find it utterly amazing the general lack of interest in the subject. Like, you know, I don't want to, again, I don't want to sit here just in total amazement because I want to get into some solution-oriented thinking in some other uh, segments of the discussion. But I find it amazing that people are willing or were willing and are willing still in some cases, unfortunately, to follow orders and comply with various things but then seem to just have no or a, uh, an apparent lack of interest in, for example, where the virus came from. Like one of the weirdest things that I've heard people say, and actually I was kind of surprised to hear um, Gert Vandenbosch just yesterday, I think, uh, or no, sorry, it wasn't yesterday, it was the, the, the previous Thursday, um, a week before yesterday, Gert Vandenbosch was a guest on the High Wire, and he repeated something that I can't stand to hear, which is that where the virus came from doesn't really matter at this point. Well, how could you say that? I mean, it's of paramount biological and legal importance. Mm -hmm. Like, I just find it so strange. If somebody, if a, like I've been saying, if a dude punched another dude, there would be a bigger criminal investigation than around people who started a global virus pan, you know, a virus that spread around the world, which is another question. I don't want to just jump all over the place, but just to put it out there for your further inquiries and just for the general discussion, I think one of the most fascinating things about COVID that we have to return to is the question of this virus, how it spread and how it did not spread. Because, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many instances that I heard of, of people who were, um, you know, in an apartment within a, a COVID patient, someone who was, you know, fairly sick or very sick in some cases, coughing and had various symptoms and they didn't get sick themselves. So how did the virus spread all the way around the world and then not spread in a room or a household? I don't know, yeah. but that's the type of thing I would like to have an answer to. But my question for you now, Ryan, is considering the divisiveness of all of this and the fact that this has split families up, this has uh, ended friendships. It's been such an incredibly divisive thing, this whole COVID uh, e event and the policies that resulted from it and then, you know, the subsequent, um, you know, 
changes in, in personality and the, the political realignment and everything that seemed to happen. What do you think is the right tone for us to take with the medical freedom movement? Because I'm finding it's, it's a very, uh, it's a fine line that we walk in that on the one hand, we don't want to antagonize people and we don't want to divide any further but how do we speak seriously enough about this like i just i'm i have a hard time speaking with kid gloves when folks are dying you know it's kind of not the time not it's not kid gloves time i don't think when when folks are dying and, and there's this incredible health emergency that's happening and then of course again all the legality that goes along with that and and theoretically us being able to protect ourselves from such an event in the future through improving the laws and maybe having some laws passed to protect us against medical mandates and other such things if that were possible well but see that's the frustrating part about all this is they already exist they, uh, they, we have we have we have international law we've got bioethics we've got state federal all these different things that they just pretend this there was some kind of a loophole Right. Well, you can't force except when we argue that X, Y, and Z. You know, and there's that's where you get into the problem. Or you could literally just point to your constitutional rights, which shall not be infringed or God given. They can't just argue. Oh, except there's a caveat, which they do without everything today. Right. This is just dishonesty. So the, my, the, to go with your last question first, the idea would be at this point, it's very simple. Like it, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If all you're trying to accomplish is is individual liberty and people allowed to make their own choices, and that's where we draw that line. We tell people, like, I'm not going to get into debating with you about whether this is safe. The point is, is it's your choice. Do it yourself. You, you, you want to take it? It's up to you. You want to make these decisions for your children? That's on your family. That's your choice. I am making my choice. The moment you begin to argue that I, I have to do something for your safety, you're losing your mind. You have right. lost content. You have lost the understanding of what liberty means, of what constitutional rights are, of what any of these things are. Like, how can we have an international bioethics declaration from UNESCO that literally says that you cannot put the individual or the rights of society above that of the individual? That you cannot pretend science is more important than your personal choice, and that we always have the right to say no? And then they just go, "Never mind." It's it's, it's staggering, right? So the point is, that we go, it's about choice. The only argument here is that we each get to make our own decision regardless of what's going on. And the only way to take that to its extension, to its logical extension, is to say, I don't care if we're talking about, and this is where What's-His-Name just made an argument, which I still, which shows me, I think his name off the top of my head, oh, Sam, uh, Sam Harris? Sam something. Harris. Sam Harris. Yeah. He, he came out and said, well, if it was Ebola, if it was 50% death rate, then all these people would have been okay forcing it on everybody. And I'm like, there you go again, proving that you don't understand what we are talking about, right? I don't care if it's 100% death rate. It's my choice. I agree. And that's, and that's just logic. And the point would be, obviously, if people knew it was that dangerous, then they most likely would probably take it anyway. And that's how that works, and it always has worked, you know? Right. So it's just about drawing that line in the sand about choice and then letting people make... Because a lot of the movement ends up trying to kind of, and I get it, trying to step ahead of that and saying, oh, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to save your children, which I'm all about that. I don't think these things should even be in existence right now. The ones, the COVID shots they're giving people are absolutely deadly. But you got a lot of people make their own choices. We can't make that same mistake in reverse. You know, you got to give me information and let them look at it. But to, to the earliest part about the, uh, about the location, you know, it's, 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 I get where I get where Gert's coming from when you say something like that. I mean, I don't. I, I, don't, I, he, I, I think he was saying it from an that. immunological point of view and not from a legal well, point of view. Right, for like like the idea being, well, if it's if it's it, to, to figure out whether this thing is dangerous, you know, we don't need to know where it comes from. Like I, I get that, but I'm with you in the sense that it's paramount to understanding whether this was what we are all concerned about. You know, that this was a deliberate act, or even just that it was irresponsible action by the government that led to this like that's a, that's more important in my in some cases than whether it's dangerous now but i i think it's more important the immediate thing to stop people from taking this thing right so it's, it's kind of a mixed bag it's definitely difficult but yeah that's i forget the middle part but i definitely think that just choice is where it all comes down to now one of the guests that you've had on on t-lab is um the great dr sucharit bhakti mm -hmm. and um i i was just so impressed by Dr. Bhakti from the beginning. And I noticed he was met with very aggressive censorship very early. That was my first little taste of, hmm, censorship is happening. Because I was looking for the dissident doctors, and he was one of the first that I came across. And the interview with him, I think, on trigonometry 
was the first thing that I was thinking. This is something people should see to start thinking about some other considerations in regard to this. And just as soon as I sent it to people, I was getting messages saying, yeah, the video is gone. It was removed. <laughs> so he was aggressively censored. And then I noticed it was fascinating that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was held up, quote-unquote vaccine. I always like to say fake vaccine or product falsely marketed as a vaccine. I hate to use their terminology when it's incorrect. But um, the the J&J jab was suspended for a few days, it seems. They noticed some blood clots. And I said, well, that's what Dr. Bhakti was saying. So why was he suspended? He should have been on a board, on a committee, being consulted, since he was obviously very knowledgeable about the potential harms of these things. And that's a, a thing that I would like to ask you about. Um, it's sort of a little bit of gossip, I guess, from the scene. But, but to put out there the premise of what Dr. Robert Malone was saying in the first place. I think his best interview was also on the high wire where he really got to go into his experience as an inventor of mRNA. And I think a fundamental problem that people need to understand here is that Dr. Robert Malone, an inventor of mRNA, to, you know, to what extent it's been advanced and altered and other contributions have been made, fine. But he has patents that are directly related to the injectables that were, were put out. And Dr. Mar Robert Malone simply said mRNA wasn't safe. We, we discovered it. We thought we had the greatest invention in medical history, and we realized it's actually not safe. And maybe it could be fixed. Maybe it be, could be used for acute medical emergencies. But his original quote was, the government is playing fast and loose with public mm -hmm. health. And he just basically said mRNA is dangerous, and no one has explained how they solve the problem of that. And that's basically what it seems to me happened is that there was something that's on record as being dangerous. And without fixing it, they gave it to people. So I found it strange when I, I shared links. And I remember one person in particular said, I'm not impressed. Well, it's not a dance routine or a song. He said something's not safe. I mean, what's there actually to be impressed with? But speaking of Robert Malone, what... And I don't mean to bring you into gossip, you know, I, I obviously I'm, I'm expecting your, your journalistic point of view, not like your, your personal feeling necessarily. But what do you think is happening here with, the, with this sort of infighting that's happening on the medical freedom side of things? And, you know, the, the Robert Malone massive lawsuit, which seems absurd. I, I'm, I'm very impressed with what Robert Malone has said in various speeches, but I'm disappointed that he's suing other members of the medical freedom movement. And I'm just wondering, like, what's going on at this point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. It would, it would be. It's you know, I'll give you my opinions, but it's hard to speak to, you know, what people are thinking when and they're taking action like that. But of you know, I, it's hard, there's so many obvious manipulators in all of this, and I think to take it from the earliest kind of like giving them the benefit of the doubt kind of perspective, I understand how it's easy to kind of be overly concerned or overly suspicious. It's almost, it's, I mean, it's not almost, it's justified today. We, it's a lot of this is very manipulative. So you, you could fall into this category where they may have a difference of opinion on a very important point. Of, I mean, even more specifically talking about like the virus, no virus conversation. Right. And like, I'll be the first to tell you that there's a lot of really compelling stuff, both in regard to whether COVID-19 is real or whether the viruses have ever been real. And I, at this point, I, I feel like I'm in the middle I feel like no, neither side of this has really fully explained enough for me to, and that doesn't make either side happy, quite frankly. But I, I, objectively, I think there's a lot to it. My point, though, is that you'll get people that will then decide because Ryan, or let's just say like, you know, two doctors, have decided that this is not what I think it is. He is a fake person because I know I'm right. right. Now, that's hubris. That's assumption. And even if they're right, I feel like that's pretty ir irresponsible. Like as a doctor, right. they could just like we all know people can just think differently. We can, as I'm saying, with this bigger body of work around terrain theory that I've looked at everything and I still walk away going, I don't know. I'm not convinced. Like, how does bacteria play into this? Couldn't that be the thing? All these things I bring up. But then people just go, oh, you're fake. me, You're a shill or whatever. I think that's happening in this dynamic where you get people or could be who disagree on very fundamental points of mRNA and they just start acting like they're convinced that person is not real. I don't know. There's a lot of suspicion about Robert Malone because of his ties. I have seen the kind of ideas that mRNA, Robert Malone, yeah, uh, that you could, you could start 
bottom line being with mRNA being floated as even possibly being useful right now is really concerning to me. Right. Even if you think it is a viable technology, like how you could ever use something like that with the current broken nature of all of our systems, like it seems dangerous. So I don't know, and I've seen that a lot, but I think Dr. Bakhti in particular has proven himself to be one of the most trustworthy people in this entire thing. And I've seen it from, the, like you, like you, from, I'm with you on that. From day one, he was outspoken. He was clear and concise, and he was saying these are dangerous. Uh, he, he's, on, he's quoted on Fox News in 2020 saying, if you take these shots, you take them to your doom. Yeah, I mean, think about how far ahead he was. I mean, there were doctors that were barely willing to stand up and talk about masks at that point. He was coming out telling you, run screaming. And the biggest point, and this is why I think he was so attacked and still is being attacked, because he came out and said something that every single one of these doctors knew, still know, and most have yet even have even dared to say anything about still. You cannot vaccinate against a respiratory virus with a muscle shot in your arm. Right. It's impossible. You cannot create mucosal immunity. And what happened? Oh, weird. These didn't cause mucosal immunity. Who could have guessed? Right. Dr. Foxy, right. who said it over and over. And, and so I'm, that, is, that freaks me out, to be honest. How can we not? That means every one of these doctors were too afraid to say what they knew was fundamentally true? That's terrifying. And that goes back to the manufacturing consent, whether they felt they were going to lose their practice. Right. Well, yeah, you know what the analogy money? was that you, right. you drew to mind earlier as you were describing just the sort of the bigger mechanisms of things and how everyone just sort of plays their part. It sort of reminds me of like a Broadway show. You know, if I'm sitting there playing the tuba as part of a horn section of a bigger orchestra of a bigger show, well, I'm not the lighting person. I'm not the manager. I'm not even the guy playing the trumpet. I'm playing the tuba. And we kind of think that the person who's in a system is aware of the entire system. And mostly they're very fixated on their own responsibility within the much larger structure and mechanism of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. But um, another bit of infighting that's happened that I haven't had a chance to fully wrap my head around that's even frustrated me more than the Robert Malone thing was I was... I was shocked to see Sasha Lachipova attack Professor David Martin. And, I, and she was calling him a fraud. And I was just thinking, well, how did he get before the European Parliament? They didn't determine that he was a fraud and he has no background in patent law and, and the stuff that he's presented himself as an expert in. I mean, he's been extremely well-spoken. It just, it, you know, that frustrated me so much because those are two of the biggest heavy hitters on the yeah. scene so it's like your first baseman attacking your third baseman you know it's like come on guys um what's going on why at what point is attacking each other more important than fighting the monster that we're all fighting yeah see that it's it's an impossible question because I, I'll, I'll tell you right now there's plenty of people that i am very convinced are and i feel like i could prove it not fighting for truth who are not on anybody's side, who are, who are actively misrepresenting the truth on a regular basis. And I'm not even talking about, like, difference of opinions about origin or the, the you know, lethality, but, like, basic fundamental things that everybody acknowledges, even the corporate media or, you know, whatever. They just misrepresent things to benefit themselves. It's happening everywhere with Maui right now. That's just how this tends to go. Right. But so my point would be that it's hard because in that dynamic, Who's to say that Sasha is not aware or vice versa that, that they, you know, like let me put it this way. If you become aware that somebody is actively from within the community misleading people, and let's just say you are convinced by that, it's a hard thing to not feel that's more important to point out because I'm the first one that will say that people leading half truths are more dangerous than wholesale liars. I've said that for, and I say that right now over and over because it's so very clear that you have these pied pipers of the paradigm that are leading people with half truths and misinformation right into where the government wants them. Like mm. that's why you know they want you to see the right as the way you know the white supremacist, but you know whatever they're framing them all as, and so you got these people that are driving them in that direction that aren't. It's not organic, and vice versa. Same thing on the left with the trans movement, whatever else. And so the point is that I, it's, I guess it's hard. Again, I don't know what they're thinking, but it's very difficult if you think that to not feel like it's important to act. But I do agree with you. I think that if you had to draw a line, it's more damaging to draw division between people who are, even if wrong, trying to do the right thing. Right. So that's why I say it's an impossible question, because, you know, it all comes down to what Sasha or Martin think. And, you know, I think they both seem like legitimate people. I think Martin has done some amazing work on those patents that really did kind of 
blow open the door about the, the clear engineering, whether or not you think that became COVID-19, what he's showing you is crazy important. Right. Then, then Sasha's coming from the angle of the military countermeasures and, and the fact that, you know, I don't know. It's almost like you think they should be working together. together. Yeah, you know? right. Exactly. Yeah, hard. Um, so, you know, do you happen to know what the point of division was? I, you know what? I need to go. I need to, I, I'd started to read stuff. And the only thing I remembered when I was trying to remember, what did she actually accuse him of? Was she, I just remember her calling him a fraud. I was like, about what? For what? I need to look at it more carefully. Um, but yeah, those were two of the leading figures in the movement. But um, let me return to sort of the big, uh, the the big picture again, which we we started out talking sort of big picture, and I, I want to return to big picture in terms of what Sasha Latipova introduced to the conversation. Now, initially, when all of this was happening, my instinct, what I thought we were observing, was, oh my goodness, this is the day that corporations, corporate power, that pharma is exerting, we're more powerful than governments. I thought this was a big push by, you know, too big to fail, too big to jail corporations who are now saying, we bought the government and now we're cashing in. Then Sasha Lachipova comes in and says, no, 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 this was a military operation. This whole COVID thing was a Department of Defense operation and apparently has a bunch of FOIA documents um, to back up what she's saying. Now, what's your take on the origin of power of this? Or, I mean, this is, is this a military operation? Is this corporate? I mean, what is this? And then if it's a military operation, why were Russia and China, for example, in, in coordination with the United States? Why were our on-paper enemies in harmony with us about this? They, their intelligence services didn't indicate to them this originated with the Department of Defense in the United States. Would they be buying into an agenda laid out by a military adversary? I can't get yeah. myself over the top to think who actually has this level of power. You know, it's yeah. like the um, the incredible uh, montages after 9-11 where we saw all the media organizations around the world was our lives will never be this our lives will never be this out you know those brilliant montages where they say hey the media corporations around the country are being fed lines from the same script writer and then all of a sudden we saw that around the globe by different world leaders what is the origin of power where, where is this being derived from it's it's inconceivable yeah, I, I think that it comes down to the question of whether we think that the gov the military has essentially co-opted, co uh, you know, the corporate side of the, of the world, or if it's the other way around, or if the pharma corporate side of the world has co-opted everything else. And it's so, you know, or, or there, it's more complicated than that, because I think the, co the, correct, the core question is, well, really, as you pointed out, it's obvious to see that the pharma industry, or rather just, you know, the, the whole kind of fascist overlap of what's going on here, the blending between government and corporations where we don't even know the difference, the public-private partnership, that's all of what that is. That is very clear. Now, is that deriving an agenda that the military is choosing to take part in? Are they working together? I mean, it's, it's really hard to see. But I do think it's important to notice that the military and the intelligence apparatus are very, very clearly its own kind of thing in my mind. And I think that you could even make a very clear argument or prove that the apparatus, the CIA kind of entities, are not necessarily under the control of the government. Or rather the White House, let's put it that way. I think it's more that they're almost unaccountable to this point. They work together, if you look at it that way. And so it, you could look at it, taking the military side of it. It's very clear that this was an agenda, that it, or rather that it started there. Right, so you have the military aspect of this that really does, and I think most of these things do, and they work with the pharma companies in, in regard to testing and different things because they have to. So ultimately, you have this idea about biosurveillance, about you know nanotechnology in general. We're already talking about the Internet of Nano Things. Like these are all military-sided concepts. Robert Langer, Charles Lieber, right? All this stuff it all ties together with what they're trying to do invasively, both to foreign adversaries, but also to people in their own countries. So then you have the pharma side of it. Where they're they're outwardly only concerned about illness and health and so on, but yet they're still using these parts, which Sasha and the rest we can prove are coming directly from medical countermeasures, from things that are about defense and military, or rather war. So is pharma aware of that? You know, I mean, I guess my big answer is I don't know. You know, I don't think we do truly know 
I think the real the best way to look at all of it is that these groups are definitely working together, and I think I would argue they definitely know what they're all generally working toward. And you could just say they're all one entity, you know. I but I, I generally think it's much more multifaceted than that. But it's like all the rest of the conversations we've had. These groups have been co-opted. That's why you see the revolving door between government and pharmacy or pharma, and the military is just this constant, it seems, you know. And I think that's the whole continuity of government aspect and, you know, the real kind of control structure. I, I quite frankly don't think the White House has much control today, but that's another story. Right. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. I mean, it just seems like uh, more th- more theater than ever before. I mean, don't they have like the mm-hmm. alternative White House, which is like a set for shooting a sitcom type of thing? Like, you know, Biden got his first booster on a on a what's basically like a set. <laughs> It's, it's an for, important for discussion of government, starting with Reagan. I mean, that's the that was the creation of the shadow government, and it never went away, right? I mean, it grew, and, and it literally is, you could argue, and that's that's where the intelligence apparatus is coming from. I mean, they like if you understand the concept of constant government, the whole point is to have an active government in the event of an emergency, right? So the entire White House goes down, and all of a sudden, they, but they have constant government ready. They initiate the plan. The point was to have it's active. Not that they initiate it, but rather that there is a secondary kind of shadow government. And that's just, that you could argue that's more so what's controlling things today. That's the deep state. That's the never, the unelected, never leaving power structure. You know, and I think that the corporate side of things are just kind of the co opted version of that. I mean, maybe at one point these were individuals, but I, we, I mean, if you can look and see that what, I think it's down to four companies now that own all newspaper, media, radio, everything. It's the same kind of game on the, on the food side or on the corporate side. They all kind of come back to the same ultimate groups. So I guess we should start really looking at who, you know, the, the key controllers behind these individual groups and their connections to the military. I bet you that would show everything. Right. And a, 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 another huge question. I'm sorry to ask such a huge question here, but I'd love to hear just your reaction to the question of why did they need to inject everybody? Because they clearly weren't injecting people with nothing. Um, you know, there's this discussion of maybe as many as a third of the injections were placebo. But if you want it, and I'm not saying that that's not true. I, I don't actually know. But I, I'm, it just strikes me as strange that when you do the full court press to inject everybody with something, why would you waste that one-shot deal injecting people with placebos at any point? But in any case, it's well, like there was a, the depopulation agenda was proposed by Mikey Eden early on. He said, I just can't see anything that they're trying to do other than, than depopulate. I thought that was fantastical at the time, but I didn't discount it. And now we have these excess deaths to go along with the vaccine rollout, you know, direct correlation. I think it's fair to say we're past the correlation does not equal causation argument. It's causal at this point. It's a direct timeline, yeah. and it's not being right. observed in the countries where the shots were not administered. So there's also the um, the injectable operating system. What's the deal? Did they want to kill people? Did they want operating systems in our body? And if some people died as a result of that, that was collateral damage. What what were they? What did they want to inject us so badly for? I mean, it's such a immediately are accused of it being a conspiracy theorist and even speculating about that. But they did want to inject us and succeeded in doing so on a massive scale. So why? Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I always put out there, I I agree, I think that's what ultimately happened, but we should at least ask ourselves whether or not that number is a lie. Just, just to throw it out there, because I I think question everything's important. The total, you mean the total, the total uptake, you mean? Like, let's just say maybe it was 20%, maybe it was 40 Maybe it was 99. My point is, you know, I totally agree. Well, first of all, exaggerating your success is a form of promotion, first of all. So if they're promoting what they're doing relentlessly, that's exaggerating the enthusiasm for it is necessarily going to be a big part of it. So I totally agree. And, and, that, and that's what, that leads to the social engineering that, you know, we're herd animals. You know, people are very susceptible to suggestion. And so if you come out and go, 90% of people got it. Why haven't you? Most people are going to go, oh, you know, maybe I should. And so I think that that's just, we just ask that for people. Because I always point out that the bivalent shot really highlights the fact that people showed up. 14% of people, only 14, 17% of people got it, right? So they, they said, we're not going to do this, even though they were coerced and went along with it. We're three shots. They stepped up and said, nope, not this one. Right. Too much. Enough is enough. So we're running out of time, unfortunately, Ryan. I hope we can do this again at some point. 
But I want to ask you another enormous question that hopefully you could answer really quickly so we could play a little bit of your music as we're closing. But okay, um, I'm getting some feedback. I can't, I'm hearing another voice. So I'm having a hard time hearing you. Oh, really? Hello? Can you hear me? Testing one, two, yeah, three. Yeah, I can hear you, but there's another voice in the background. Keep going. I'll try to work with it. Yeah, sorry about that. So the general question is, with the central bank digital currency approaching, what do we need to do now? What, what's your general recommendation to the concerned citizen? They want to step up. One thing they need to do is tune in to thelastamericanvagabond.com and check out your previous episodes and what you're coming up with. But, you. but in general, what does the citizen need to do now to brace ourselves for potentially, you know, potentially another pandemic people are talking mm -hmm. about, the central bank digital currency, the next phase of the game? How do we prepare for the next phase of the game? Yeah, that's a good question to end on. By the way, I apologize. the last point that was kind of in the middle, and I I got distracted by what was happening, so I apologize about that. But no, it's okay. I'm sorry. We're, we're give me, scrambling give me, here. Give me a pass on the last one. No, but so the, I think to end in general, I think that the uh, whether it's CBDC or anything, I mean, we, I think it's important to resist all of this stuff right now. Anything that leads in a, in a direction of less privacy, no matter what the sold convenience is, and I really emphasize the sold convenience does not mean that's what's going to happen. Right. But the idea that we need to start taking a stand against things that may make your life easier if they're trying to like trying to push into your life more to get your and I'm not even talking electronically alone you know the retina scans face scans and palm scans that's that should be a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned but just in general whether it's about information about your family consensus information like it's so clear that there is a kind of an alarming invasive push right now that's about censorship it's about you know stopping you from being able to express your opinions whether it's elections or anything else your so medical records not being private anymore <laughs> everything just have the courage to stand up for what you believe is right and you know what maybe that means you think i'm wrong in this case and that's okay too but the point is we need to be courageous enough to stand up and, and put forward what we think is right and i think all of these things are very clearly on the surface designed to reduce your freedom, to to increase their control, even if you think that amounts to somehow a better society in the future, that shouldn't be one person's choice. It shouldn't be one group's choice. It should be everybody's choice to make up their own future. That's self-reliance, that's self-determinability. I mean, that, that's what we should all be striving for, you know? So uh, opt out of it, man. I think all these things we need to kind of take a beat on and stop trying to rush into the metaverse and CBDCs and all this stuff. You know, I think it's important to see how they flesh out or, quite frankly, stop them entirely. That's where I'm lining up. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Tune in to The Last American Vagabond, everyone. It's such an outstanding program. And we also have a little bit of music to play as we're, as we're ending the program. I want you to hear this great song by Ryan, Money Game which we have queued up. Ryan is he's a little modest about it, but he's a wonderful singer and guitar player as well. Thank you, Ryan. Talk Thanks, to you brother. soon, brother. Talk to you soon. Appreciate it.